This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Good afternoon and welcome to the latest Royal Blue Podcast in association with Sport Pacer. Obviously the international break is in full flow, England taking on Spain this evening, which is Monday night, but still a lot of Everton-related news to talk about. I've got Dave Prentice on my left, Paul Wheelock in front of me, and today's special guest, video maestro Ian Kroll, been promoted from our usual view from the Gladys. Hello, Sam. Pleasure Hello, to be on the show. And Sam pr- pr- actually pronounced maestro correctly today. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a few more mispronunciations to come anyway. We'll, uh, we'll kick straight into it. It was a year ago today that Everton went to the Amex Stadium at Brighton, and we were losing 1-0. Uh, Wayne Rooney scored a late penalty to salvage a point, but Dave, the wheels were already coming off that Ronald Koeman reign, weren't they? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's weird to think of it being only a year ago because so much seems to have happened uh, in Emerson's you know, history since then. Um, I, I couldn't actually say at that time that you could physically see you know, the wheels falling off because I, I genuinely believe that there was a little bit of panic set in a bit too soon, you know, amongst the powers that be. Uh, if I remember correctly, the start of that season, the fixture list was absolutely horrific. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was subsequently revealed to have been, you know, the toughest set of opening day fixtures that any club had had in the Premier League era. And so, you know, you, you could kind of use a little bit of perspective, you know, sort of look at it in that respect. And there'd been, should we say, tentative signs of, um, you know, I wouldn't say a revival as such, but, you know, some degree of, of form returning. And Brighton, never the easiest place to go. And it was, you know, sort of an important uh, point to get. But was it only a week later? Was it the Arsenal game? Yeah, um, he was sacked the, the, the Monday after the after that we, game. We played Leon in midweek. Right. Obviously, we lost 2-1. And obviously, Ashley Williams, that kind of incident with the with the fan. And then, yeah, we lost Sorry if I'm a bit vague about it. It's actually on holiday in Tenerife during that Arsenal <laughs> game. And uh, getting the uh, the phone call from the editor saying, we need a comment piece. So having to rattle out a comment piece from poolside at Tenerife. <laughs> I've, I've had worse places to be working. Fantastic uh, game to miss there, Dave. Oh, just <laughs> actually, I, I watched it on, uh, well, it was about 90 degrees out there. You know, it's all pints in the hand, you know, sunshine. But, you know, just best place to watch it because it was a fairly horrific uh, performance. But, no, it was. Th- things were certainly starting to creak, you know, if not fall apart. And I have to say, I was... A little surprised when the decision was taken to sack Koeman so quickly after that. But yeah, things weren't right. You know, things were beginning to, to grind to a halt. And there, there was a growing sense of disillusionment, you know, so certainly amongst the fan base. But, you know, I certainly didn't sense it, you know, that, that weekend, the Brighton game, because, you know, that, that was a decent result in the end of it. You know, it was, a quite, I thought at the time, quite an important uh, goal from Rooney. You wondered if it was going to be a turning point. Clearly it wasn't. And Paul, around that time, can you remember what your thoughts were on, you know, a season that started with such optimism, such big spending and it just kind of descended into I mean the, the, the pure panic really wasn't it yeah that that was the biggest disappointment wasn't it because I think for years as Evertonians we'd wanted to have a club with money to spend because David Moyes for so many years had to beg borrow and steal didn't he really to survive in terms of deals in the transfer market and it we were even though we'd lost Lukaku and obviously not replaced him I still think everyone was pretty optimistic about the players who'd come in but it was I thought it was pretty clear uh, early on that there just wasn't a team there or a squad there good enough, you know. I remember the uh, the Europa League games, and like Dave said, then I remember being on all day with my dad and my brother-in-law and watching the ones out there, and it's just think, God, it, they are glorified pre-season friendlies, but there's some really gaping gaps in that team. But 
even to, but to be fair, I didn't expect Cumin to go so quickly. It was just around that time. I think it was Atalanta away, wasn't it? Three 0 that, that was the real turning yeah. point. Tottenham at home, three 0 and yeah. it, you just thought, God, something's gone seriously wrong here. So I, it was just such a disappointment because I had so big hopes for Cumin initially when he came in, and even after that second half of his uh, his first season, you know, after the, I think we finished seventh, didn't we, in the end? Yeah. It was, but it kind of felt like it was coming by the Arsenal game. I mean, you look at the results there, and we lost 2-0 to Chelsea, 3-0 to Tottenham, 4-0 to Man United. We had the Umania salvation of Bournemouth when we won 2-1 in that turnaround. Then we lost to Burnley, uh, the Brighton draw, and losing 5-2 to Arsenal. Do you think it did just get to the point where there was no return for Koeman and there was no other choice to be taken? Yeah, I mean, obviously Dave's mentioned there the the fixtures that we had at the start of the season, and, and... You know, you can say it's almost a bit of an excuse, but for me, it did start in the summer with the recruitment policy. It was, you know, there was, you know, clarity on whether it was it was Walsh or Cumin making these signings. Um, but we knew from probably March, April, or at least people in the club knew that Romelu Lukaku wasn't going to be at the club in the in the summer going on to the new season, and we we didn't attempt to replace him whatsoever. Um, the recruitment policy was just flawed to me. It was it was completely completely. Um, against everything that we should have done. We packed the midfield full of uh, average players um, and you could just tell immediately from the first game of the season that it was uh, it was always going to be a struggle. And for me, Koeman, I don't want to be one of those um, fans who says, I told you so, but I just, I didn't like him from the start. He's just about to say, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did, I did because I felt in his first season, okay, it was a, it was a solid, uh, solid finish to the season, but... Um, my mind always drifts back to the the Norwich game in the League Cup where we um, we we were beating back Goodison Park. Stephen Naismith scored. Did he scored two. So scored at least one, didn't he? He, he got, got stand no ovation, didn't yeah. he? I think he scored the third, and then Josh Murphy scored that, or one of the Murphys scored. Well, we, we, we went out of the the competition, and Cummins' response after the game was baffling for me. I just couldn't believe that. <laughs> Not that he didn't seem bothered, but he, he genuinely didn't seem that bothered that Everton had been knocked out of a, a cup competition. I don't know. It's, for me, that would, it was then I was thought, something's not right here. Do you agree with Ian, Dave, that it all came down to recruitment? Or do you think there was a, a deeper issue with, with Koeman and, uh, and the idea? the ideology brought into the No, we, we've spoken many times in here in this room about uh, the recruitment policy that summer and uh, how appallingly fractured it was. And uh, the the failure to replace Romelu Lukaku was just unforgivable. I mean, we relied so heavily on him uh, for so many seasons. You know, he, he carried the forward line effectively on his own and fortunately had a great fitness record. So, you know, it was very rarely missing. And so I always remember when Wayne Rooney returned to the club and... Um, Ronald Koeman talking about how he could play a number nine if necessary, he could play number 10 if necessary. And we didn't know quite then how ill-suited Sanjo Ramirez was going to be to, to Premier League football. But even then, you could see there wasn't really, you know, sort of an out-and-out replacement as such. And you could argue there still isn't. There still isn't. You know, Cheng Tosin may be, you know, is, is an out-and-out centre-forward, but, you know, clearly not the same quality of Lukaku. And so it was. It, it was clearly very, very fractured. And, you know, to try and bring things up to date now, yeah. when we're seeing, you know, the, uh, the the kind of signings that are being made under Marcel Brands uh, and Marco Silva, there appears to be a, a cogent philosophy now where they're actually, you know, identifying areas of the team that need strengthening and they're looking around, you know, the continent for, for quality, you know, to try and bring in and young quality as well. There seems to be an actual... A system in place now, which certainly didn't exist, you know, so only 12, 18 months ago. I think with the Lukaku thing, though, is it was always going to be impossible to replace the quality that Lukaku brought to the team. We were never, you know, if you're looking at replacing Lukaku, then 
you're going to look at the likes of type of Aguero and that level player and more like higher level than Lukaku. So we were never ever going to attract that type of player. But you know, Kuman and Walsh didn't didn't even like attempt to get a striker in, as far as I concerned. It was more. I mean, how long did we try and um, attempt to negotiate for Gilfie Sigurdsson? Um, hopefully now he's showing his worth. But it was at least yeah. about two months worth well, of negotiations before we ended up getting him. It just feels like that was a waste of time. Yeah, they, they threw all the eggs in the Olivier Giroud basket. I think they thought, you know, so he was mm. nailed on to come to Everton. And by all accounts, he was enthusiastic about the idea until Mrs Giroud decided that you know, <laughs> uh, London was a far better option. Uh, but you shouldn't just be finding yourself in a position whereby one player knocks you back and suddenly your entire transfer strategy yeah. fails. Mm-hmm. You should have, you know, follow-up options, other players that you could possibly go for. Um, it, it, it's a difficult one, but yeah, clearly you know, a major opportunity was missed that summer. Do you think bringing it up to speed then, Paul, do you think the Koeman second and what followed after it, do you th- obviously with Sam Allardyce last season, do you think now that's made Everton fans kind of have a little bit more patience and kind of embrace the idea now of building something, you know, as Dave's saying, we're bringing in a little bit younger uh, player, you know, Marcel Brand's quite clearly enthused to bring in people to develop. Is there more of an acceptance now that this is a, a, a build and something that we've got to have patience with? I think it's something we have to. I'm, I'm not sure if it's like completely universal because we don't know yet, do we? You know, Silver could lose the next three or four games and we just don't know the reaction because... I think from what happened on the Cumin, it just felt like we were let down because we had all this promise, didn't we, of the money, as I was saying earlier, and it just felt like we're going to be start of a bright new era, we're going to push for the top four, we're going to push for trophies, and it almost feels like we're not back at square one, that's probably going over the top of it, but it almost, as you say, feels a bit of a rebuild job, whereas probably last summer we were thinking, OK, well, we finished seventh before, we may have lost Lukaku and Barkley obviously wanted to, was was intending to leave at that point, but we're still going to be up there amongst the, the big six, so to speak. So, yeah, we're going to have to have patience, uh, but I, I completely agree with what Dave says. At least it looks like now there's a plan in place. There's a, a style of football that wants to be played and there's uh, identifiable targets. It's this young, it's people with, not, I don't know whether resale value is the right word, but, you know, just people who've got scope to develop for Everton Football Club and if the worst happens, like a Lukaku, you're going to get a profit back on him. Whereas the signings under Koeman last summer, when they go, and a lot have already gone, we're not going to get much back, are we? You could, you could argue Everton fans are already the most patient fans in the Premier League. Yeah. I mean, 23 years since the last you know, item of silverware graced the Goodison Trophy Room. Only, was it one cup final in all that time since 1995? You know, given Everton's traditions and given Everton's you know, sort of standing in the game, that, that's not good enough. So, you know, they've, been, they've had to wait a long, long time you know, for any shred of you know, success. So I think they're prepared to wait a little bit longer. <laughs> I think the patience will be there, though, as long as there's progression of things being done the right way and obviously winning games. At the end of the day, Koeman, he was sacked because he, he was losing games. He wasn't getting enough points. Um, so, I, obviously, you've, you've heard of a couple of Everton fans on Twitter saying Silva needs to go already. That's, that's just ridiculous. You know, He obviously needs time now, but I think he's definitely going to be given a season or two. But as long as you can see a natural progression of what he wants to do, and again, like I just said, points and results start going the right way I think Everton fans are more than willing to give them and buy them enough time absolutely and a style of play you know so that actually makes going to the game an enjoyable experience mm. which it wasn't you know so many times last season Sam Adelaide was winning games uh, you know he was grinding out 1-0 and 2-0 wins but it was a tough old watch and you know if you know that you're not really going to be challenging you know for top four places or for trophies you want to at least be enjoy going to the match you know it's an experience you can sit down and you know sort of cherish and say yeah I enjoyed that and there are signs certainly that you know Marco Silva's football teams are producing that. 
And and do you think, Dave? Obviously, yourself being at the last few matches, are you starting to see you know signs of a, a silver ideology that, that that's coming into play? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a very very early days. I mean, he's only been here five minutes, and you know the the home draw against Huddersfield was so desperately disappointing. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh God, you know, so where, where's where's the team going from here? But then that's followed up immediately by you know sort of two. I say decent performances, you know, hesitatingly because the first half against Fulham was poor, yeah. uh, but the second half was very, very good. Uh, and then, you know, the game at Leicester was just tremendous. I mean, it was, they, they seem ideally suited to playing on the counter away from home, better than at home games at the moment, <laughs> which is a bit of a con- concern given the Palace is next up at Goodison. <laughs> but no, I mean, they do look more attractive on their travels. And that was, that was a great win. Leicester's not an easy place to go, uh, but, you know, cre- created chances played really good football, uh, just enjoyable to watch. And there's already players in that squad that you're willing to fork out, you know, the price of a match ticket just to watch. Bernard is like, you know, a, a crowd hero in the making. You know, he's got so much talent. Richarlison, apart from his obvious talent, he's he's got a bit about him. You yeah. know, he's got a little bit of, you know, spikiness about him. You know, he's got an edge. And Sigurdsson, we know he's got talent. We just wanted to see it utilised in the right part of the team. And, you know, that is starting to look the case now. And, you know, I think you're going to... Wait a long, long time to see a goal better than that from an Everton player. I, I just sorry, I just, I just wanted Silver to give the fans something to shout about. You know, on the, on the last pod that I, you, you guys did, that I, I listened to, and you were talking about atmosphere and what's your best atmosphere being. And the, the games that you um, you mentioned, like some of them were um, the, the Bayern Munich one, obviously from the eighties, the Fiorentina one from Europa League, but even the Wimbledon game where we were at relegation, it was like we were right at the bottom or we were right at the top. Now for the past probably what five or so years, we've just been stuck in the middle with absolutely nothing to shout about, which is why it's probably been, it was probably very, very frustrating that we went out of the cup so early because you wanted the cup run. I know we might have that in the cup, but I just think, give the fans something to shout about and, you know, see what happens in the atmosphere or come back there. What would you see as progress then for this season, Paul? Well, I think the only misstep he's made was Southampton in yep. the cup because as Dave rightly points out, and I, I should have mentioned it myself as a blue Evertonians are very patient because it's been so long coming up to the longest period in the club's history isn't it without a trophy and I think that he's made a misstep there with Southampton but to be fair he's won the two league games either side of it so let's hope it continues in that vein progress now is probably to be the best of the rest and I know that sounds I don't want that to sound defeatist but at the moment I'd probably say the top five and, and even Arsenal are looking like they're an improved version to the one that finished last season I think it's just to become to get an identity to to play good football, get fans excited to go to the game again. Because under the times last season, I particularly remember the Southampton game, the last game of the season. It's one of the first times in my life that I've actually been bored at a football yeah. match. Like <laughs> genuinely bored. Like just thinking, this is this is not fun I've at had all. Plenty of those experiences. <laughs> it was just too many under Sam. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think to try and finish seventh and to have a good go at the cup and just and get not the fans back on side, but as, as Ian was saying then, get them excited again that there's this hope for the future because particularly at times last season, there wasn't much hope. And is that something you'd agree with, Dave? Yeah, I mean, the, the Southampton defeat was so frustrating because cup runs can generate momentum. I mean, it's not just a case of getting into, you know, hat for the next round and, okay, Leicester away would have been a tough draw anyway. But it does generate a little bit of momentum, which can rub off on league performances then. I guess the crowd excited, it creates a bit of a buzz around the club. You know, the players themselves are different on the training ground because, you know, there's places in cup ties, you know, sort of play for. And that's why... It does wind me up a little bit when you see wholesale changes uh, in cup ties. And I, I accept that modern football is so much more intense uh, than it was, you know, sort of 20 years or so ago. And therefore, 
you know, the, the mid-80s team could, you know, be the same team week in, week out. You can't do that anymore because the demands on players are so great. But equally, you can try and manage the changes a little bit better, I think. It, it, it's a difficult one, really, because, you know, we talk about Southampton and, you know, being a mistake by, by Silva. Yet the players he brought in, you know, were arguably the ones who were the brighter performers. Bernard did well enough to hold down a place for the following weekend. Adam Ola-Luckman looked, looked bright that day. And so, you know, he brought them in and they did OK. Yeah. You know, did it quite well. So it, it's a difficult balancing act. But immediately, it's going to be point, your finger's going to be pointed at you if the result goes the wrong way. And so it was a missed opportunity because, you know, apart from being in the round, ne- next round of the cup, you just get a bit of excitement beginning to build around the club. And that, you know, sort of rubs off on everybody. So, you know, please, Marco, don't make the same mistake in the FA Cup. Let, let's, you know, pick a stronger team as possible. But that, that team was good enough to beat Southampton. I've got no doubt about that. Like, the players that were there more than cables of Easter Southampton, they in that struggle year on year in relegation. Um, but... The, the changes that he made, he inviting pressure on himself if it backfires, which it did. And, you know, look what happened. Okay, then we go and, we go and beat Leicester in the league um, a couple of days later. But, you know, we had this conversation um, on the fan podcast the other week that I would rather have beaten Southampton and got beat against Leicester because we're not going to go down. We're probably not going to get Champions League football either. So, you know, if he'd have gone, and w- gone on to, to win that cup, the League Cup, he would have gone down as a legend for me straight away. Not, not to be obviously. So <laughs> now that we're out of that cup, though, what what do you see as progress then with the league and FA Cup remaining? Yeah, I mean, I've already got to echo what Paul said because it's just a realistic shout, isn't it? You know, we finished eighth last season um, under Allardyce, and you know, Burnley finished seventh. Could you say if we don't finish any higher than eighth? Is it a failure from Silver? That's one way of looking at it. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think you have got to be looking at seventh and eighth, and you know. I'm sick to death of saying I want a good cup run. I don't want a good cup run. I want to. I want to win it. I don't want to be getting to semi-finals and finals are getting beat like we we have done against Man United and Liverpool in the past couple of years. Because you know for a fact you'll go to Wembley on that day and we'll get beat, and you'll be you'll be just just as fuming as you will be as going out to Southampton in the in the the early rounds of the League Cup. So you know it's going to be a big ask the cup course it is because all the top teams go for it now, but we've got we've got to win a trophy. I'd I'd take twelfth and winning a trophy. I would. I'd take 17th and winning a trophy. Yeah, agreed. As long as it's a trophy and then you've still got your upper league. I know yeah. that sounds ridiculous because you're going to be in a relegation fight if that's the case. Um, but I just want a day out. I, w- I want the well, memories. That, that was 1995, wasn't it? I loved that season. You know, yeah. it was a struggle until, you know, certainly until Joe came in. But it, it, the FA Cup, it's a memory that will last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And that's what a younger generation of supporters like yourself, Sam, have just not experienced yet. No. You know, there's been close a few times for semi-finals to final, obviously, against Chelsea, but it's just, it needs that. The next generation needs that. There, there were teams in the past that always had a reputation for being, in inverted commas, cup teams, you know, like likes of Tottenham that could never do it in the league, but would always, you know, turn it on on any given day and become a cup team and win the FA Cup or win the League Cup. And, you know, you'd absolutely adore Everton being known as a cup team nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's different because it, it doesn't happen like that anymore because... You know, so much money around in the game now that your Manchester Cities, your Man United, your Chelsea's, your Arsenal's generally end up in the last four of both cup competitions. And you don't get that many teams making it through to the final, you know, either competition now uh, because 
you know, there's so much money around. The other, you know, clubs have got to try and justify that expenditure. But Everton are moving towards that echelon in terms of expenditure now. You look at the money that's being, like, forked out. Yeah. You know, everyone's eyebrows were raised at the cost of Richarlison, the cost of Sigurdsson. doesn't really matter, you know, provided that Everton are being ambitious enough to try and bring in, bring in players of that kind of quality. And they are. Therefore, it becomes less of an excuse now. You know, you can't say that, well, you know, City's Chelsea's have spent huge sums of money. Everton are starting to spend decent money as well. Maybe not quite the levels that they will spend, but significant enough to warrant at least challenging for trophies. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Our reporter Connor Dunn unearthed a good fact this week that the last time Everton won three Premier League games in the ru- on the on the run was January 2017 against Crystal Palace at home, and obviously they arrive at Goodson on Sunday. One concerning report from international uh, duty this week was Idrissa Garner Gay uh, pulling up with an injury. We still don't know the extent of that, Dave, but how important is Idrissa Gay to Everton's midfield? It's a difficult one now. I mean, I saw the, the gift doing the rounds this morning of him limping down a yeah, touchline. Yeah. It looked like his ankle was heavily strapped, you know, and if, if he's limping, you know, any five or six days before the game, it would suggest, you know, he, he's going to miss out. Uh, yeah, miss his influence in that he's won more tackles than any other player in the Premier League this season. But equally, the balance in Everton's midfield hasn't been right this season at all. Um, when Schneidlin and Gay were playing together, it didn't look right. When Davis came in alongside Gay, marginal improvements, but again, still doesn't look quite right. Uh, so, something does need to change there whether Gomez is ready to start a game yes I don't know You know, so we'll have to find out when we speak to Marco Silva later this week uh, but I wouldn't be too distressed to see a different you know personnel a different um, set of players a different you know system or, or even in the middle just to see if that can improve things a little because alright you know Gay is a decent player and he'll be missed but equally that midfield's not quite right at the moment Paul Adrissa Gay, just a decent player for Everton I think he's our he's our best midfielder I don't know whether that says a lot about the the other midfielders in the squad but I just think he is our best bet in that defensive midfield role in front of the in front of the back four and Owe and you've you've got strong opinions on this with him and, and Morgan Snydlin but I again was it the game against West Ham where he tried to become more creative than the because uh, yeah. and I felt at the time that Sigerson was playing too far ahead I would have liked him to drop back and get more but I don't want to see Guy in that position I want to see him protecting the back four winning those tackles like he's done all season and then giving it to your Bernards and then your, your Richarlison's and Sigurdsson's but he will to me he would be a big miss at the moment if he was out I think the West Ham game I Paul just mentioned there I just felt like uh, Guy was just getting frustrated you know he was the one that gave the ball away and then obviously, sorry, he gave the ball to Tosin and Tosin lost the ball. But he felt he was getting frustrated with the lack of, you know, things happening, the lack of creativity. So he tried to take it upon himself to, to do something about it. Um, it's not his game. You know, it's not. He's a, he's a winner of the ball. He's a tackler. You know, look at his past two games. His stats have been amazing. Is he like the most tackles in one game this season or something like that? Yep. That just shows the type of type of quality that he is. He, need, he needs to win the ball. Um from the opposition and just play it five yards. That's all you need to do. And then you've got the likes of what you you deem, your, your Snarling, your Davis, your Sigurdsson, hopefully Gomez, the ones to be creative. Um, so I felt he took a lot of unfair criticism following that West Ham game. I'm not saying he was totally blameless because I, th- I think he was, but I just felt at least he was trying to take the, the game by the scruff of the neck and do something about it. Um, and 
in the end, you know, we got battered by West Ham, didn't we? Which is unfortunate, but you can tell the past two games he's been he's been on top form, and I think he will be a miss. I, do, I genuinely do think he'll be a miss if he's not in for Crystal Palace. That, that in itself is, is a skill, though. You're talking about winning the ball and then just giving it simple no, exactly, to play yeah. alongside him. I mean, Kante made an absolute you know sort of legend out of himself for doing that for Leicester, but. Chelsea have tried to reinvent him, you know, so playing a different position higher up the pitch and being more creative. And it's, yeah. you, you say it hasn't worked. I mean, they're flying this season. Now, so maybe it is, but yeah, so you just get the impression the same, it's not quite right. Yeah, yeah. I put him in the same, you know, yeah. kind of category in terms of position yeah. as Kante. I wouldn't say he's as good as, as Kante. I'm not saying that, but um, I just think that guy is definitely a player that will be missed if he's not in the team against Palace. I'm, I'm quite, I quite like the Kante comparison because it'd be great if he was as good as Kante, but <laughs> you don't just throw out, I just don't think you need a midfielder like Snyland, and this is not trying to dig out Snyland too much, who just sits there. I think you can have a midfielder who sits there but can you know run across the, the line, so to speak, like Guy, but we seems to be over the years... Like to me, someone like Gar- Morgan Stylin's not a patch on Gareth Barry. You know, he would sit there and he would get those interceptions, but his passing was so much better and he was more ambitious and he was braver on the ball. And I just think with Guy going forward long term, I'd like to see another passer alongside him. You know, I don't think we ever need to go back to just that sitter there and then Guy running around all o- over the place. I think Guy can do that job with someone more, you know, a bit more advanced. Barry, Barry's definitely the perfect example. He was more direct, got the ball forward, and he probably left a season too early for us. I think that was another wrong mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we just intertwined this podcast. It's like it's meant. Re- replacing, we, we basically replaced Gareth Barry with Wayne Rooney, and it, it just kind of didn't work out at all, did it? No, I mean, I, I think he had a conversation with Gareth Barry last summer and told him that he wasn't going to be figuring, you know, as much as he had been previously. And Barry just wanted to carry on playing. You know, he was one of those professionals who just loves playing. And so it was almost like they agreed with each other. Okay, you know, we'll let you go if you get an an offer. West Brom was still a Premier League side. So, you know, I think he... You know, was quite happy to move on there. But in hindsight, you, you've got to be ruthless, I think. You've got to say, look, I don't care whether you're not going to play as much. You know, you're under contract. Um, you know, we need you. And he probably would have played more than you actually think. You know, because, It's such short-term thinking, especially yeah. the fact that we were in Europa League, you know, as well as other two, two cup competitions. Like, it was ridiculous to let him go. Yeah. And we felt it. You know, we felt it. Moving, moving across then to Italy today, Dave, Kevin Morales stated that he wants to remain a Fiorentina. Got quite a, a strong reaction from Evertonians online and, and not, in, not in a good way. What, what went wrong for Kevin Morales, Evan? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> where do you want me to start? <laughs> It's just his attitude seemed to plummet, you know, so you know, many, many seasons ago where, you know, you'd get a player who on occasions could influence the outcome of a game, you know, so dramatically and then would go missing for the next half a dozen matches like and felt that, you know, he'd actually done enough. And that's that's just not good enough, I'm afraid. Uh, You know, I remember the player that arrived at the club uh, and, you know, the difference he made and, you know, I wouldn't say he became a favourite, but, you know, he was a player that, you know, the fans could relate to. But it didn't last for, well, longer than a season or two, I don't think. And he just, you know, was absolutely beset by inconsistency. And so his exit, you know, was well, you know, before, you know, it was, it was needed long before it actually happened. I always remember the, um, the um, end of season AGM. <laughs> well, you know, we were actually hauled, you know, you know by, by Bill Kenwright, you know, so publicly and chastised. I think it was Phil Kirkbride had written the piece, you know, so basically saying, you know, why, how on earth can Everton be thinking of giving Kevin Morales a new deal? And he said, well, I've got news for the Liverpool Echo. <laughs> we, we are going to offer Kevin Morales a new deal. And at the time, we'd had one of those little flurries of decent form, you know, and so it appeared justified for like a month. And then he just, you know, set back into what we'd feared of uh, going through the motions again. And, you know, 
Everton fans wouldn't welcome him back because he's burned his bridges a long, long time ago. And yeah, if he wants to stay in Florence, beautiful place, I believe, he's welcome to stay there. <laughs> Does the quality that people like Theo Walcott, Richarlison, Bernard are all showing the season, Paul kind of show, you know, why people like Morales now are a thing of the past for Everton and inconsistent performers like that? Well, and with Davey did show flashes of quality. There was the goals at White Hart Lane. I think he yeah. scored a couple of beauties. I remember in Moyes' last game, did he score against two at West Ham at home? Yeah. He went on a r- length of the pitch run against Stoke at home, yeah, I remember, a late enough, Saturday yeah. night. Yeah. So, but it was just towards the end, it was just going, you're not kidding us anymore. You yeah. know, like, you will not keep this up. And particularly last season, during the time of Koeman sacking and then Unzi taking care to take a charge, it's just that was, it's a, uh, what's your words, I should say. It's just this approach was just not right at all. And by that stage, it was just like, you know what, it's it's best for all parties if you move on. So, you know, if he's enjoying Florence, good luck to him. It was the penalty incident for me, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. well, we all know that, infamous. Um, you know, thinking he's, you know, the, the big one and taking the penalty and he goes and misses it. You know, Everton fans just saw right through him there. I think you're right, both Dave and uh, Paul there, that flashes of brilliance from him, absolutely. I think the ones that I can remember... Did you mention there, Paul, a game against Tottenham? He scored a belter free kick. I think Wolfsburg away. I thought he, I, I went to that and um, we won 2 0. Martin's team playing on the counter attack and I thought he was like, he was brilliant. thought he was really great. So, you know, that period where it was probably a couple of weeks, maybe a month, a couple of months where he was in good form, but, you know, he's always going to go down as the player who, who robbed the penalty from there. <laughs> was it Baines, was it? Or. I, I think it was Baines, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, which is fine as long as you pop it away. But obviously, he didn't. Didn't he score five pre-season against the uh, might of ATV? Oh, he did, yeah. Get him so, off. Okay. Get him <laughs> Again, he was, handed, he was handed the number eight jersey. So you know, there's a new manager in town, and they're playing a gang of you know sort of waiters and you know, sort of barmen, <laughs> and so he turns it on, yeah. and then goes missing again for the next three or four pre-season friendly games. And fortunately, Marco Silva saw right through him. I don't even think the Olympiacos fans liked him towards the end of his long no. stint. No, there wasn't it? Was cut short, wasn't it? Was it cut short? Yeah. He arrived it to this big crowd of fans uh, one night, and pitches were great to be fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think they were enamoured with him by the end of it. Like. Well, no, he had been top scorer in Greece when Everson signed him, and th- that was the one good thing you know that David Moyes did uh, when he was signing players. It wasn't just a case of you know cast- watching a player two or three times; he would you know scrutinise it to a huge degree. Um, there, there was that oh, book who's uh, the author escaped Michael Calvin who wrote that book about um, scouting systems yeah, yeah. and there was that chapter about David Moyes' network and it was incredible yeah. you know so the various rooms you know so with all the, the whiteboards yeah with all yeah, the levels yeah. of information in there and he, he made a, a mission because obviously you know money was much you know more scarce uh, when he was Everton manager and so he had to try and get it right he couldn't really afford you know to take chances on expensive flops and so he wanted to make sure players attitudes were right and, you know, whatever he'd seen in Morales, you know, out in Greece, you know, the attitude did appear right, you know, when he first came. But, you know, maybe, maybe the uh, the philosophy was flawed because, you know, there clearly was some kind of uh, mental block there that manifested itself a little bit later down the line. Uh, but certainly for a couple of seasons, you know, he, he was a player who looked decent, but that was a long, long time ago. And just to just to quickly finish on today, we, we touched on some classic Everton atmospheres in, in the last, last podcast, obviously. It's the international break, and one article that caused a lot of debate this week, Dave, was your all-time Premier huh. League 25-man squad. Chris Beasley, our other reporter, was that enraged by you not picking Marrow and Fellaini. <laughs> he, he did his own 25-man squad. So there's been a lot of interesting comments. There's some people not happy that people like Tony Hibbert didn't make the cut. Not uh, even that. Our columnist Michael Ball wasn't happy Fuming, that he wasn't didn't he make the cut. Fuming, wasn't he on Twitter, Ball? saw that. 
As is the size of body. It's me, mate. I couldn't have included him. Be accused of favouritism. Didn't include David Unsworth either. Likewise, Unzi and Diamond are me, mates. You know, so <laughs> no, I mean, I, I tried to go through it just on the impact at Everton Football Club uh, yeah. and their quality. I thought the one that would get, cause the most, uh, you know, controversy, if you like, was the absence of Wayne Rooney, because certainly for those first two years, he was an absolute force of nature. But it was like a fleeting force of nature. You know, we had those wonderful goals at Leeds and uh, Leeds and against Arsenal. And then you wouldn't see him for like half a dozen games, largely because David Moyes was trying to protect him and try to nurture him, you know, using him from the bench. Um, but I think in his Everson career, I think he only scored about 25 goals. Yeah. So that was why I thought, well, OK, Yakubu, uh, Paul Ryder has probably had more of an impact uh, in the time at Everton. Wayne Rooney is a genuine great of English football. You know, no doubt whatsoever of that. You know, the country's highest goal scorer, 253 goals for Man United, an absolute superstar. But he did it all at Man United, you know, rather than at Everson. So that was the argument behind that one. The other one, Phil Neville, that's just people being anti-man, I'm afraid. <laughs> Phil Neville was a good footballer for Everson Football Club and a very good captain. And uh, anybody that's telling me Tony Hibbert was a better, you know, fullback than him, well, I would argue otherwise. I don't think they were. And likewise... Uh, what was the other one? Maran Fellaini, he was claiming, should have been... Big, uh, Chris Beasley, a big Fellaini fan? Well, yeah, he was good for Everton. I liked him. I was one of his defenders, to be fair. But, you know, I think the person he left out of my squad was Joe Parkinson. And I just thought Parky was great. And, you know, unfortunately, it was, uh, you know, a knee injury that cut short his career far too soon. Uh, the last In the last Everton team to win a cup, uh, an absolute tank track tappler, tackler of a midfielder, easy for me to say, uh, but had a bit of quality as well. You know, everyone remembers that little drag back in the semi-final against uh, against. Spurs, uh, just a very, very good player, and I thought he deserved inclusion. But that's the idea of these squads to try yeah. and provoke debate. Unfortunately, there was quite a bit oh, yeah. provoked. <laughs> yeah. so. Ian, with, with obviously Dave's just passionately d- defended his squad there. Are you Team Prentice or Team Beasley? Um, I think it, it probably comes down to what you've achieved at the club. Really, I mean, Fellaini was a he was a very, very good player for Everton Football Club. I, th- I think. The the big one for me, you included, you didn't include your Kubu, did you? No, I think I probably would have had him in it, just for the fact that it was impacting in goals. Yeah, yeah. But then, if you're gonna have, you know, but who do you leave out? Well, that's what I mean. It, yeah. So it's either probably Ryder, but Ryder won a, a trophy, didn't, yeah. didn't he? So it's. What, what are you? I, I can understand why people would you know sort of quibble about Ryder, but I just thought he was. Underrated, and the goals he scored were big goals. You know, yeah. apart from an FA Cup winner, he scored the goal that kept us up. You know, so down at Ipswich, he, he actually played in a centre mid uh, in his final season when Dave Watson dragged him off the back of a motorbike. I think it was. <laughs> he thought he was going to China uh, to finish his career there. In fact, that was a bizarre old story. This when uh, I was getting phone calls uh, late at night from Mrs. Ridehouse, who was um, <laughs> basically, you know, saying, "Look, you know, what can you do about this? You know, Dave Watson's basically spoiling our career here. Our hopes, you know, he ho- thinks he's going to China, and Dave Watson won't let him go. And I'm trying to placate her, saying, well, I can't do much about it. Guys. I'll, I'll have a quiet word with you know, so Dave Watson will see him tomorrow. I don't know quite what sort of influence she thought I wielded at Everton Football Club, uh, but, but Paul, oh, obviously, right, yeah. but you know, so Paul actually agreed to delay is moved to China uh, so I'm played in a very very important game uh, at the end of last season when uh, we played Tottenham at home I think Gary Speed scored a diving header and, uh, and Ridders played centre mid and played very very well showed his qualities as a footballer as a central midfielder and then at the end of the game jumped on board a motorbike and disappeared off to the, off to the airport to try I and make that his play to China it was, it was incredible uh, but I just I, I thought he was a real good character Paul Ride. I was a very very good footballer and you know underrated by some Evertonians and then, Paul, we'll, we'll finish on you then, just picking up on Sutton Ian said there. Do you think, you know, Leighton Baines, Phil Jagielka both out of contract at the end of this season, Seamus Coleman now into his 30s. 
do you think for them to be considered true greats, like what, what they've achieved, they haven't played a lot of games, <laughs> they need to win a trophy, really, don't they? No, I, I, I probably disagree. I think they go down as... It's hard to call... Maybe not to be, to be fair, apart from Ray Wilson, is there been a better Everton left back than, than Leighton Baines? I'm not sure. So yeah, you probably would call him a great. It's just difficult, isn't it? Because 60s, 70s, 80s, you could measure greatness by trophies. Certainly in my era from say like the 90s onwards kind of thing, it, that's difficult because there's only been one trophy. So you've, 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 I was looking at the Premier League squad and thinking, God, is he a legend? Is he a great? And stuff like that. You, you've got to put it into context, so to speak. And Kale... And Baines, they are, they are my greats. If you know what I mean, Ferguson, you know they, they, they're, they're Everton greats. I would say it's it's a real tricky one that because I really hate this phrase legends. And you know, yeah. I, I mean, I know a lot of players from the eighties get really, really wound up when they see some current players. I'm not going to name any names, but you know, labelled legends because clearly they're not. I think. You don't need to win anything to be considered a great, to be considered a legend. Matthew Letizia, you know, is he a great? Of course he is. He's an absolute legend. He won nothing at Southampton. You look at Everton, uh, Dave Hickson won nothing, but he's, you know, deservedly labelled a great. Equally, going back to the, you know, the 40s and 50s, your Peter Farrells, your Tommy Eglinton's, you know, so genuinely considered great, and rightly so, despite not having won anything bar promotion from the second division. So you don't need to win anything. You just need to be, you know, incredible service to the football club or excite the fans. And of the ones you've mentioned there, it's a, it's a tricky one, you know, Tim Cahill. Yeah, I could argue that he probably was, you know, sort of an Everton great, given the impact he had at a very, very mediocre time in the club's fortunes. Duncan Ferguson's the one that always divides opinion. And, you know, I, I can't have him as an Everton legend, but I can understand why he'd be considered a great, you know, because, you know, he, he was, well, briefly part of an FA Cup winning team, came on as a sub when he clearly wasn't fit and, you know, was injured through an awful loss of that season, but had a great impact tail end of the 96-97 season when he played through the pain barrier and effectively did as much as anybody to keep an Everton up and then that cameo towards the end of his career you know 2004-05 where he scored a number of you know really important goals including that diving header against Man United so you know with the benefit of you know so hindsight looking back you know so 10 years and you'd say yeah I can understand why that is the case but it's subjective isn't it which is why we argue about it all the time I'm going to disagree I think you do need to win something do you need a trophy I, I, I love Tim Cale, I love Michael Arteta, I love Duncan Ferguson. Uh, Duncan so so Ferguson. Dave Hickson's not a great. <laughs> Look, I just think that you to to be considered, you do need to you need, you do need silverware. I really do. That team of the eighties. I mean, I was born in nineteen eighty six, so I was I was far too young to remember it. Um, I've grown up with Everton in the nineties, struggling teams. All right, I'm just uh, going to throw one name at you, Bob Latchford. Won nothing. You find any Evertonian my age saying he's not a great, uh, and you, you'll, maybe it you comes. Maybe it comes with time. Then maybe it comes yeah. in after decades of decades of time. I don't know. I just think, you know, you just one example that like you brought up, Matthew Letizia. Matthew Letizia is a, a footballing legend. He is because he's quality, but he played for a team in Southampton, yeah. and he's a, who who didn't win anything. Um, Struggle, but it's not, it's not his fault he's playing for a poor team. I mean, Bob Latchford did as much as anybody yeah. trying to help Everton to win things. He scored in League Cup finals. He scored in FA Cup semi-finals. Yeah. He scored in a couple of teams that came close to winning the league but didn't. And it wasn't down to his lack of quality. It was the lack of quality in the squad. The fact mm. that he didn't have a decent goalkeeper throughout that era. Uh, but I just think that, you know, he's an absolute great, you know, sort of stroke legend in you know, some people's eyes. Maybe in 20 years' time, the likes of Tim Cahill, Michael Arteta will become... Like or seen as Everton legends, I love Kale. He was my yeah. favourite player at the time. It's very difficult. I don't like, you know, if Tim, Tim Kale's in the room, I probably will be calling him an Everton legend. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he's not. So I just think you know, you do need to, you do need some sort of achievement at the club. And when I say achievement, you need, you need silverware. You do. Um, 
we've been we've been in that mindset for too long now where it's not mediocre but you know maybe second place is not not the worst place to finish um first place should always be the best place to finish i think just i know you want to finish this sample touch you know when we won the cup in 95 dave um you know we still had a couple of winners in that team from the late the late eighties era, didn't we? The likes of Southall and, and Watson. Yeah. We we haven't had that, have we? Really, um, over the past twenty years. Yeah, it's a difficult one because nineteen ninety five. Okay, they're winners. They won the FA Cup, but how many of them are greats? You know, if you go to that squad, Matt Jackson, Gary Ablett, uh, Joe Parkey, Graham Stewart, are the Everton legends? Even they mm. themselves would say they're not. You know, even though they actually won a trophy. So I think it needs to be more than that. It needs to be just like some indefinable quality that you know. So you have at that football club. Andy Gray was there five minutes, and he's an absolute Everton twenty-four carat legend. Adored that man. Uh, what he did on a football pitch, and you know, he was there for is it sixty odd games he played. Uh, but you know, when it mattered, he produced. You know, so goals in cup finals, goals in huge games. Mm. So it's 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 such a difficult one to you know quantify. Um, some you know, one man's legend is another man's journeyman. It's, it's just it's football. It's, it's why we uh, argue and discuss it so well, much. Well, he's just going to have gone down as one of the best Everton managers of the past couple of years, hasn't he? And he didn't win any win anything. So you know, they say well, it's definitely gone down as one of the best Everton managers of the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Without question. <laughs> well, that was a nice passionate debate to end on. Anyway, uh, another good show. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Dave. We'll be back uh, later on in the week to finally, finally preview some Premier League football coming back to Goodison Park. Thank you for joining us as always. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.